Um, okay, well, we're going to get started and <clears throat> just going to close our eyes. We ask that the infinite creator be with us as we explore how to hold the order and the disorder together with an open heart so that we merge into a reorder and that the reorder honors the order and the disorder and makes space for that, but provides a structure. And it's in this place that our whole hearts can be opened and we can see the world from holistic points of view, including ourselves. And we ask for this sight, we ask for this open heart, we ask that you bless this meeting tonight and we embrace your presence. Amen. Amen. All right. <clears throat> well, um, we are going to briefly go over the integral stages and some of the stages that we were talking about last time. And then today we're actually going to be talking more specifically about uh, some of the what has occurred in the collective consciousness in the macro scale as well as the micro scale what happens to us individually and i know that eduardo has has seen this firsthand um in some areas and i'm going to ask him to chime in when when it's um right and teresa i know your story and you've seen some of this too um coming from a traditional background, but then trying to um, accept it uh, and move forward in your own way of understanding. <clears throat> so um, we're going to talk about these kinds of things and see where the conversation leads us. Uh, all right, who, are, who is on there today? We have Fred, me, Noah, Sonia, Teresa, Eduardo, and I thought I saw Barbara. I guess she's not on right now, huh? Okay, that's all right. Um, <clears throat> the first thing, if you guys remember from two weeks ago, we were looking at uh, the okay, the traditional, the post, the traditional, the modern, the postmodern, and the integral. And I just want to ask you guys, um, from your perspective, when I say the word traditional, or when I say traditional values, or that that type of uh, worldview, what is your thoughts? What are some thoughts that come to you? Okay, Eduardo. Um, I don't know, I think, and I mean, this is probably like Jordan Peterson's fault, because of what he talks about, but like order, I guess, like, order and um customs and um all the all that stuff okay orders and customs all right fred word picture that i immediately try to associate with traditional is the thanksgiving quaker hat <laughs> traditional mm -hmm. you know you know remember you know the quaker hat thanksgiving that whole, you know, old school hat. The pilgrim. This way, this is the order, this is the way it must be. And there is like no specific reason why. It's just, it is. It's You were born into it. 
it was it's gonna be like this so line align with it yeah okay good Teresa did you what do you think about when you hear Teresa uh, traditional um I guess I think of like restrictions primarily mm-hmm. um, that's kind of where my mind goes it's just like it's narrowing the lens through which we see reality in my mind which I mean I know that's not always the case, but I think from like the framework that I was raised in and all of that, that's kind of what comes to mind. Yeah. Well, traditional, <clears throat> there's uh, some ways we can think of it. And uh, the traditional, they value discipline, values a lot of discipline. Um, and these are just where the values are in, in the worldview of the traditional. Um, a strong sense of the greater good a strong sense of a larger community that we belong to, uh, and that there's a an either an an unconscious or an overt need to and a desire to self sacrifice for that greater good, and that and we're going to serve the greater good. Now, the greater good doesn't mean the world. From a traditional standpoint, it means the community. And we might say that we want to help the world by getting everybody to kind of believe from our traditional perspective. That might be a way to want to have people to be, to help the world. But from the traditional mindset, there is a service to the actual community itself. Um, and these are, these are good things. Uh, there's a strong sense of values from a traditional standpoint. And what's really interesting about the, um, the values of the traditional standpoint is one author that I've really gotten to like, his name is Steve McIntosh. And uh, he's, he's coming from the integral approach. So he's coming from approach that is include and transcend all of the different worldviews. So traditional, mod- modernity, post-modernity, and, and then we have integral. And uh, he says that in his search and looking at the different uh, cultures, and he's borrowing from academics from other disciplines, he's, he says that there are really are seven traditional values or virtues that seem to emerge in each culture. Um, and, and it's very strange how this happens, but it's as if that these particular seven are fundamental. Like if you're going to create a traditional society, these seven will, will be the pillars. And they're good. They're good ones. Um, now, we may have synonyms, similarities. We may be uh, turned on by a certain word that is similar to one of these seven. But if you boiled them all down... They're going to come to these seven. So I'm going to read these seven out loud and um, just kind of have them sit with us, sit and simmer a little bit. Uh, So we have prudence. And what is what is prudence? What, What do you guys hear when you hear prudence? Uh, Saving money, uh, being uh, frugal, frugal. Okay. Um, and prudence would also be similar to discernment. Maybe that word discernment, having, being able to not, excuse me, jump right on in with impulsivity 
because you can't be super impulsive when you're in a traditional mindset. You have to be prudent and discern because the traditional mindset is discerning truth from untruth, you know? But I think discernment can be a good thing and that we need to have more of that. Certainly if it helps us to lessen impulsive decisions, oftentimes they can get us into trouble because they're not coming from um, an emotionally balanced position inside of us. Uh, another one is temperance. What is temperance? you've heard that I would say like similar to self-discipline yeah temperance is it, it's like self-discipline and it's connected a little bit to this idea of moderation um, pacing you know so you can see how this is a good value just try to think about these values in your life and and whenever I'm working with clients oftentimes I really pull out these and I say what muscle do we want to work on? <laughs> because if these are some seven really foundational values, um, and I'm coming from an integral perspective, I'm not trying to impose traditionalism on anybody, but I'm just saying what maybe is a value that we can work on muscle on. <clears throat> so temperance would be the sense of pacing, a sense of moderation, a sense of balance, equanimity. All those words might be more modern words for temperance. Another one is courage. When we've had to step up, even though we're fearful, we will have the courage to say something um, and risk being vulnerable in that moment because it's not easy, you know? And I, 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 I know it, at least four of your stories here where you guys I know your lives and you've lived um, very courageously in your life, especially maybe the past year and a half when you've had to stand up against um, the, the strong structure of family beliefs <laughs> and have had to be courageous in that. Uh, can anybody share an example of what courage means to you? A year ago, actually, probably two a year and a half ago, um, I was uh, working very closely with an evangelical uh, uh, ministry that booked all of my dates. I was completely associated with them, and you know, and uh, in a sense, kind of in a partnership. Uh, when George Floyd situation happened. I challenged them to step up uh, on the behalf of the uh, marginalized uh, and stand with them. And they wavered and went back and forth. And I told them, hey, well, if you guys can't step up and stand up for those marginalized, I cannot continue to uh, allow you guys to use my name as, as your black guy. Uh, and so I, uh, gave them plenty of time to make a choice to uh, stand up and not just for blacks or, you know, or our browns, uh, people of color, POCs. I said, you know, anyone who's marginalized, we have a problem with uh, white supremacy. I need you guys to also condemn white supremacy. Mm -hmm. uh, 
and uh, they couldn't do it. And so I said, well, I love you and I'll continue to love you. I will continue to speak best of you in public, but I will not continue to associate my name with you. And so my place of courage has been to walk, step away from that. <laughs> been broke. I haven't had any, many dates traveling and speaking, but you know, I'm happily broke. I'm still making funds and paying bills and going on. And uh, so that was my uh, place of courage that I've been living for this, this past year. I didn't know that, Fred. Um, thank you for sharing that. That's wow. Um, somebody else, uh, a story of courage this past year where you've had to go against the grain and it's been, you don't know what the outcome is going to be. I think, um, like leaving my first of all, thank you for sharing that, Fred. Um, yeah, proud of you. Um, but I think leaving my service year position was difficult um, just because in the whole service year culture, it's like you don't say no to things. Like no is not really an option most of the time, unless you have like really good supervisors and peers who are advocating for you all the time. Um, but like, so to say like, no, this isn't working for me anymore. I need to prioritize my health and like, move on and do something else um, before my year was fully up. I think that was really difficult um, and took a certain amount of courage for me. Yeah, yeah, thank you for sharing that. And I know you also have had to have courage when being theologically different from your family of origin, that that's taken you some courage to stand up for what you do believe and how you choose to live your life. Um, yeah. Anybody, <clears throat> anybody else for courage? Yep. Eduardo. Um, well, I don't know. Like I can't think of anything specifically right now. I, I can think of one, but like, like the, the story I told you yesterday about my homeboys on the weekend, but like, I guess, um, anytime, anytime that you like go and what you said basically before, um, that I started speaking that anytime you go against the grain is, you know, considered something of courage and not just against the grain, I guess, right? Like it has to be in sake of like, I think, um, well, I don't know your belief system, something that you believe in, like, it's not going to be easy, but you go and you do it anyways because you know, it's what's right to yourself at least or whatever, you know, whatever it is that you're, you're concerning. But, um, I guess, you know, to not get like too into specifics, like, and this is like, cause it could be argued this is my fault too, hanging out and having friends like the ones that I have, but like, you know, lifelong friends of mine who were like, make sometimes bad choices and consume things they shouldn't consume. And, and, um, I don't know, like, you know, like they're my friends to some degree and they respect my choices, but having to say no to them about certain things is uh, not the easiest thing. And, um, and I say not the easiest thing, not for my sake, right? Like in the sake of like, I guess, uh, the group where they just kind of start looking at you like, oh, that's funny. But like, I don't know. And like, I, I, again, going against the grain, I, I like to do what I think is right. And like, it, other people might not understand it and they might not like it or whatever, but, um, that's okay. 
Thank you. <clears throat> we know that Michael has had to have quite a bit of courage this year. A lot of liminal space living for you. Oh, hello. Hi. Good to be here. Uh, good to be back. Hopefully this is going to be a, a thing. <laughs> I actually had something scheduled. I had another person scheduled and they uh, no-showed. And I was able to move the client that was scheduled at this time up an hour. Um, awesome. They were happy. So, uh, yeah, I hate being courageous. <laughs> it's tiring. It's a lot of work. Um, and well, I don't really hate it, but it's difficult. Um, and it's hard to, in fact, as you were talking, I wasn't actually thinking about this last year, but what I'm being asked to do tomorrow night, which is like the most painful situation that exist in terms of my clients they just left and their bad situation got so much worse and it is a, a direct result of doing the easier thing giving in enabling um enabling literally to death people and trying to get these people They've been dropped by everyone but me. Um, and I want to drop them. It hurts to see, it hurts to talk to these people because they know they created this situation and it's too late to fix it. They're just trying to survive emotionally, trying to do the right thing now. And um, I agreed to be kind of piped into a conversation tomorrow night about what's going to happen to this 14 year old boy. That's a, he's the, he's the second generation of this really painful situation. He's, he's been the one that most of this pain got funneled into. And so he's a mess and he just got dropped on somebody's doorstep. Mm. And, um, I'm going to try to go advocate for this kid with a bunch of people who run in fear. I really want to be pissed at these people. I don't like feeling the pain I feel talking to them and just the powerlessness. It, it makes me ache. And the last thing I want to do is this conversation tomorrow because it's not going to get if it goes perfect, it's still going to be bad. Mm. But I feel like it's the right thing to do. And so I'm going to, but being courageous, yeah, going against the grain, um, you know, maybe sometimes even being the last man standing. Yeah. And standing up for something very unpopular at this point. And I'm going to go do that again tomorrow night. And I don't have the energy for it. I'm worn out. I do not have the energy for this. 
I mean, I'm going to do it because nobody else will. But not because I really want to. I just know that somebody has to. And so it's me. Um, but as far as courageous this year, hey, I got teeth. Hey, hey you got teeth. Doing a job talking to people with half of your teeth gone. That's I think that's humility more than courageous. But um, standing up to the divorce, trying to do the right thing, even though it's not the uh, beyond not the easy thing, God. Um, and that's getting harder too. So being courageous makes me tired. But you know, you you you're actually touching right along the value system, the sister value system of courage and a part of these seven values that are honored in the traditional worldview that I think we should all develop the muscles, stronger muscles is justice. So I'm hearing you say, and Fred, you were saying this too. Um, and if, I, I kind of feel like anytime there's courage, there's some level of justice connected to that because we are standing upon uh, a ground of this is what's just, this is what I'm going to go down on the mat with. I I'm staking, I'm taking a side, I'm staking it. I don't, doesn't mean I hate you. I I'm going to see you as much love as I can, uh, as Fred was talking about, but justice is important. And it can be justice for one person, it can be justice for ourselves. Um, but it can be justice for other people when there's nobody else left to do that. And it, we don't want it. Maybe sometimes we don't want to. We have, but we have to have the courage for justice, even though it's both of them are hard. <laughs> but I'm not sure if you get to justice without courage. And I think anytime yeah. we're we're courageous, truly, it's because there's a sense of injustice going on. You know, they're they're, yeah. they're the same. They're they're not the same, but they're interconnected. If you can feel that. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And then um, the other three are so deep and important that I'm just going to mention them and then we'll, because there's more to cover tonight, uh, but it's hope, faith, and love. Hope, faith, and love. And those three things right there, um, I think they become the engine for us to be prudent and temperate, courageous, and justice. So hope, faith, and love sort of feed um, these other values in the you know the traditional mindset. And one of the things I'm going to start doing in my counseling office is I'm going to I think I'm just going to write these down on cards and then give them to my clients uh, because these are the seven. No matter what culture, no matter what, it, these are always coming up. These seven. So this is the traditional value system that we want to hold on to. These are the things from an integral perspective we don't want to throw away. We want to honor and build <clears throat> from. Um, the traditional mindset values tradition, obviously, um, and values authority. There's a sense of authority that's important in the traditional mindset. It values purity. Now, 
these aren't necessarily bad things, but when they're defined in a particular context that's narrow, they become dangerous. And we're going to talk a little bit about that because what the what we, what I feel the integral level is called to do, and all of us do this. I, I know you guys. We we do try to do this, and I think we need to help um, others do this too, to the degree that others are are wanting to, is to help people in that discernment, that prudence between traditional good values that we want to honor and we want to build because they you can't get to you got to have a strong foundation you got to honor those things versus traditionalism that oppresses confines hurts um all in the name of kind of a faux or fake uh history that can be manufactured and then creating a, a false nostalgia for I mean, just to give you an example of that, I always thought of build a, what was, what was Trump's thing? What did he say? Um, make, America America, great again. make America great again. I mean, that's, that's an open-ended question, but if you asked, if you asked certain people in a certain homogeneous area where it's, they're all very similar to each other and you ask them what that means, um, let's just say, you know, white people from, certain area they're going to give you a sense of what that looks like but if you ask a person of color or some marginalized group make america great again and you ask them what what would that mean to you sometimes the question might be well i'm kind of waiting <laughs> for that to be great i don't know um what are y'all's thoughts on that just this sense of the, the good traditional values, and we're going to get into some of how to discern those two versus this idea of creating a false history and then a, a, a nostalgia for something that maybe didn't exactly exist. What are y'all's thoughts on that? I think it's a bad idea <laughs> to create a false history and then a nostalgia. It's like... Attempting to control the reality of people, manipulating people for the for the purpose of having power, having influence. It's it's really pervasive. It happens all the time in families, countries, certainly here. Yeah. Um. But. You know, beware of white men bearing gifts. Sirak, you, you um, are a sociologist, actually by academic training, and a person of color. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, can you guys hear me all right? Yeah. Yes, we can. So a story came to mind recently that's a little personal uh, to me. So I, one of my students... Um, this is pre-COVID, so I was 29, 29, and I was teaching an intro to sociology class at, um, at Richland College, and one of my students that 
semester was an Ethiopian woman in her, she's probably in her mid fifties and I'm Ethiopian as well. And she, on the first day of class approached me and she gave me a nice big hug and told me she was proud of me to know that. And, you know, teaching and she just was asking about my mom and asking me about my family. And we were just talking, laughing and, you know, just had a good time. Then the next week she approached me and asked me what tribe I was a part of. And I had said, um, I, I have no idea. I thought we were all Ethiopians. I've never thought about tribe. I don't know about tribe. In fact, when I think of tribes, I think of, you know, people living in the Amazon, living in the rainforest. I was unaware that there were tribes. And so I went home that Thanksgiving break and asked my mom and my aunts, and I asked them, what tribe are we? And they immediately became very defensive and they immediately, um, and I, I can feel their energy. And I, I remember it like it was yesterday. They were asking me, you know, who asked you that? Why did they ask you that? What is their reasoning for asking you that? We don't talk about tribe anymore. We don't talk about any of that. And so all, all of a sudden I'm like, well, I wish you wouldn't have said that. Now I'm 10 times more curious than I was before. It was much more, He's just like me. He's chill. He's fun. And I was like, hey, what tribe are we? And, he, and he's like, oh, we're the Amara tribe. So he tells me Amara. And so I start doing some research. And then the next Monday when school came back, I said to my student that I'm a part of the Amara tribe. And immediately her face changed. Her whole demeanor towards me changed. And she said to me, oh, yeah, I figured you were the Amara tribe. And I said, why? What? what happened? And she said, your tribe did terrible things to my tribe. She said, your tribe stole my, you know, my father's farm, your tribe imprisoned, imprisoned my cousin, your tribe hurt my, you know, my, my school, your tribe burned down my school. And then she said, Oh yeah, probably the, the only reason you're here in the United States and you got to, you know, get an education is because of your tribe. and I want to honor her and I want her to know that I love her and I see her and I'm thankful for her but at the same time I'm kind of exposed to this whole world that is attached to my world and so that week I did more reading more learning and yeah my tribe was the tribe that had access to the resources the political power the military education and I, I began learning that my mom and her sisters were able to sell their father's farm, which was able, they used the money to pay for visas to move to the West. And, um, and I, and I began to see that Ethiopia's rich history is remembered differently by the different tribes. And we, but, but, but to tap into the history, it takes a certain humility and a capacity to own I found it easy for me to apologize to her because I am a part of the Amara tribe, but symbolically it just doesn't do what it does for me that it does for my aunts and my other family who were very hostile towards even the discussion. And the way that they dealt with the discussion was by saying, everything's fine. Everything's good. Ethiopia is great. We're doing fine. And that stood out to me because when I hear make America great again, when I hear these traditional values, I sometimes feel like they are an attempt to 
not not own the whole of our history to inform our current circumstance. Um, so I was thinking of that as you were talking about traditional values, but that happened in a sociology class of mine. Sorry to take up a few time, a few minutes. Uh, I, was gonna, I just wanted to share that. Thank you so much, Sharak. Yeah, that, that's a really good example of often what we see here too. Um, and it's, we just see it all over the place, I think. Uh, this sense of, uh, well, we're gonna we're about to get into it because I want to talk about the traditionalism that is surfacing right now, and it's important to understand why the traditionalism of not necessarily the values and things that we've been talking about, but almost a virulent form of traditionalism is resurfacing in a strong way. And this is not for us to be afraid. It's just to be observant, to have an ability to see what's going on. Um, and I'm not even trying to say to, to spur on conflictual energies towards a traditionalism that's taking root, but to understand underneath the fear there and, and to love people anyways, because that's how we help people move from this kind of uh, reactionary movement. Um, <clears throat> but what happens is, is that when disorder ascends, when we move into this disorder box, so we order moving into disorder, and with modernity and post-modernity, that is how disorder really comes into the collective conscious. And disorder... Uh, or sorry, the disorder box, modernity and post-modernity deconstruct. They, so modernity deconstructs traditionalism and post-modernity deconstructs traditionalism and, I mean, modernity and traditionalism. Right. And you will find people, especially on the left, who uh, they will often talk a lot about decon the deconstruct all they do is deconstruct uh well you know this is the problem with this politician and, and the way these guys are thinking and um these the, the homo the the hetero normative culture and these things are important to look at i'm not saying they're not but it's the deconstruction and it's almost all they have to talk about you know, there's these podcasts that just it's deconstruction and it's looking at things with constant suspicion. <clears throat> and I think it's an important stage to go through. We have to allow ourselves to go through it. We have to allow friends to go through it. Um, and if they don't go through it, then they never will move into the reorder box. So we all have to. Uh but we have to start seeing that if we're not defining what we're for and only defining what we're against, then eventually we won't know what to do when the absurd happens in our life. Because if we don't know what we're for and how we're defining ourselves and where we're getting our sense of self and perspective, then what's going to happen when our little lives or the, the collective life doesn't make sense anymore. 
we're not going to know what to do with that. And usually what happens when the absurd happens, uh, people revert back to a way to be able to handle reality. And a lot of people will go into traditionalism <clears throat> and not necessarily the virulent kind, uh, you know, but you do see an uptick of going back to traditional type of religions or going back to the the um, religion of what they were raised in and maybe they left for a few years. And these are all positive things. But they're not pure anymore because the traditionalism that we're having now is really it's what's called a neo-traditionalism. It's a resurgence. And I'll give you one idea of that in my own life. Uh, <clears throat> the, the Catholic Church that we we've been just running around different Catholic churches in the area. And we finally found one that we like so far, but most of the ones, the priests are pretty young. Um, and, and it's just the whole time that they're doing sermons. It's all about the greatness of being Catholic and Christian. And it's just a constant, uh, that's, that's what the traditional, the, the virulent form of traditionalism is a, identity and then re-identity and re just a constant circling back of who, this is who we are this is who we are and that's who they are and that's who they are and this is who we are and it's a defining and redefining of um <clears throat> the in-group and out-group so that's one thing you'll find in in a, a resurgence of tradition this new traditionalism but uh the thing that's really really huge right now huge 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 is and it really began with in terms of the collective in this country in 2016 is you have a resurgence of authoritarian thinking and authoritarian thinking is a type of um traditionalism <clears throat> it well it's it's similar but it's it's also different because authoritarian thinking does not play by the rules of traditionalism, modernity, or post-modernity. Authoritarian comes up in a, in a certain way. So what I'm about to do is I'm going to read out loud um, an author that I really respect on this. His name is Brian McLaren. And see how you can think of uh, how it's been true in our country um, recently, in the past few years. Authoritarians find security and delight in submitting to a powerful leader who promises to protect them from enemies, all enemies. Authoritarians value only one thing, and that's winning. And to achieve that singular goal, they portray toughness, and even cruelty and violence are sanctioned. But there's no admission of weakness or failure, even if it's glaring. There's an unapologetic willingness to break any and every rule to win because they're, they have a mandate that's sort of sanctioned by God. There's, they demand absolute loyalty to the leader and they do offer constant praise and adulation to those that are right underneath them but severe um, uh, 
vengeance on those whom they think are betraying them. They are going to sacrifice truthfulness and critical thinking because the leader alone defines reality. The leader alone defines reality. And the leader rewards those who submit to, to that person as good people. And then those who don't submit to that person are bad people. It really is a good and bad. Um, and what how authoritarian power comes in <clears throat> is they use fear of a real or exaggerated concocted enemy to activate, activate and unify followers behind the leader. So uh, there might be a real fear, but oftentimes it's exaggerated or it's simplified to get people who naturally have a lot of fear behind this, this leader or this mindset. And one of the uh, sociologists, a guy named Bob Altemeyer, he, um, he studied, he has studied uh, this authoritarianism. And he says about 33% of people in a country tend to have a predisposition to become authoritarian follower, followers. Their, their brains are more easily activated by anxiety and anger or other strong emotions. And are, they're willing to submit to an authoritarian leader. And they, they actually derive, they, they can measure this, they derive pleasure from that submission because it conveys a belonging that they've been searching for. So you can see how this is a perfect recipe with a religiosity um, and a political mindset that just cuts things very clear and, and people are willing to submit to that because the payoff is a strong sense of boundaries, a strong sense of us and them, and a strong sense of belonging. So what are your thoughts on this so far? Yeah, Doug, I think the thing that's resonating with me is how the thing that's resonating with me is how there are healthy and productive expressions of authoritarian leadership and how there are controlling and fear, fear inducing anxiety inducing expressions of authoritarian leadership. I think that when there is chaos and when there is panic, the need for stability is so great that it creates a wide open door for an authoritarian leadership. I'm reading the Living the Law of One book, and she talks about people on the service to self path. And in her section on Adolf Hitler, she writes about how his rise was really was really aided by Germany's economic situation and the people's hunger for an explanation and a scapegoat. And I feel that maybe this is me thinking a little too far ahead, but as our modern postmodern society becomes much more predictable and stable and routine, even though there are real threats out there, there's this, there's this lack, there's this, there's less of a demand for authoritarian leadership. There's probably a large population of people who don't even know what it would look like to belong to an organization or a group 
or belief system without an authority figure giving them permission, giving them a sense, giving them their sense of self, sense of direction. So those are my thoughts because I see a lot of people that I've graduated college with, they have little to no interest in the authoritarian leadership style. Although, even though their life is becoming much more predictable, stable, they have well-paid paying jobs, many of them are single, but they still kind of have a longing for the transcendent and the transformative. Um, so I'm seeing the, the authoritarian leadership style die off, which I think is probably good, but I also see a large population of people who are unsure of what life looks like without authoritarian leadership. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your experience. Um, anybody else have some thoughts? Um, I'm thinking about uh, Bruce Lee. He had this concept where he would call it the top dog and the underdog. And where the top dog, and, and you know, he's talking and coming from, uh, I guess, from a construct and from, you know, I, I immediately, you know, although Bruce Lee you know, was American, I think about like, I imagine this could be something easily uh, understood like in China, kind of the top dog is the authoritarian. It's not always right, but the top dog is always righteous. The top dog is an authoritarian who th rules through threats. You do this and if you do not, then fill in the blank, then you will not. If you don't do this, you won't be loved by your fellow man. You won't be loved by your God, you know? And so they rule through these threats, whereas the underdog is the opposite. They're, they're, they're not assertive. Uh, they have to get by by being manipulative. The underdog is the crybaby, the apologetic, you know? And, and so it's this battle of the two. And I think of the authoritarian is like that top dog. Also, I think that often what happens with the authoritarian or the traditionalist is most of us are born into what the traditionalist has already established. So in other words, the tradition plants the flag on the moon first. And so we come into the scene and we see a flag waving. And so the traditional points to been here it's always been there so it's got to be right and what what the fight is uh and if i can pull dr seuss you know it's like it's right until it's not it's it's great until it's not and 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 what you have specifically in in our culture is you do have different stories of different people groups who are quote unquote saying okay this was not so great you know, it was widespread by top dog standards you're saying is great, but I can show you so many things that show that it's not great, you know? And so, you know, the, the authoritarian as the top dog kind of has the say, plants the flag until the underdog comes along and begins to question, begins to point out ways that this is not great. That's where the disorder comes in. That's where that, that conflict of interest in, uh, or cognitive dissonance, a better way of saying it, that's where that comes into play. And the question is how to sit with both until you gather a place of balance to understand, okay, um, this 
you know, this is a certain way, this flag is planted right here, but that doesn't necessarily mean the planting of the flag is absolute righteousness. The, the flag can be pulled out and replanted. You can shift the boundaries and understand that, you know, that land has to be shared a different way. Instead of just saying it has to be this way, you cannot change the boundaries. The plat flag is planted, obey the flag because you have new new folks coming in saying, you know, why was the flag planted there? And who was it, you know, before there was a flag, you know, whose land was this and so on and so forth. So those are kind of my out, out loud thoughts on it. Yeah, <clears throat> thank you. Oh, that's very well said. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, the, one of the things that I think we need to watch out for is when people are moving towards this authoritarian, this need that the feel a need to be in the authoritarian piece um, uh, of it, and it's happening in religions, it's happening a lot in the politics, is from a law of one perspective, it really is a continuation of the same warfare mindset that seems to have created a quagmire of consciousness. So that that does seem to belong to our particular third density Earth's manifestations is this sense of a need for this authoritarian um, mindset because it automatically belongs within the warfare mindset, you know, to have a strong leader against the evil people. And so it's a lot of you'll just feel see a lot of scapegoating. But um, <clears throat> I do just want to just quickly say that in our modern culture we do have some uh important and powerful people that are that are powerful on the world stage that are tra neo-traditionalists and it starts to make sense when you look at what they're offering the world um because they are authoritarian and they're not they're unapologetically authoritarian um, for the sake of the greater good. That's kind of the argument. So we're talking about <clears throat> uh, Putin, for example, would be an authoritarian leader, but he's become more and more authoritarian over time because of his influencer, a guy named Alexander Dugin. Now, Alexander Dugin is a, is a Russian philosopher, theologian, who uh, really believes that from a traditionalist mindset that there is a, a Rus people, R-U-S, a Rus people, that, that their soul is somehow different. Um, right. And so that is one of the big arguments he's been whispering in Putin's ear for you know decades now. One of the arguments for this push to unite Ukraine because Ukraine was the birthplace of the Rus people back in 800 AD from St. Vladimir, this guy that conquered Russia. So you kind of see this uh, justification and Hitler did the same thing when, when he was talking about the German soul, the Germanic people. That was his desire to recapture the lands that he believed belonged to Germany because of the German soul, the Aryan soul. And so that you'll see these traditionalist mindsets, it's always for the pure. 
and they'll bring in a theological kind of essence. Like we are these people. Right. Um, the, the current president of Brazil is friends with Alexander Dugan. The current president of Hungary, uh, Victor Orban, he's a traditionalist. The current president of El Salvador, he, he's doing some very bad things there. Very authoritarian. Um, guy named Naib Bukili. Then we've got the Iranians. We have the, the Iranian president, the Syrian president. There's a huge coalition. Of course, China, too. There's a huge coalition of uh, rebranding authoritarianism in the name of sort of a theocracy. So it becomes a theocracy, a theocracy like a, um, a theocracy and an autocracy. So it's authoritarianism from a theocratic position. God is on our side. We're defining what's pure. And then <clears throat> being able to justify that from a violence standpoint. The, mm. in, the ends justify the means because the means at the end of this will mean a pure undiluted type of race and so a lot of um a lot of what we're seeing now and it's and it's really in the catholic church in a lot of ways we'll see it in, in certain kind of protestant sects as well it's reconstructionism of the traditional mindset in the name of uh providing answers that modernity and post-modernity are constantly deconstructing. So if we don't know who we are, we don't know what we believe in from the postmodern and the modernity deconstruction, we as integralists, people who are trying to find this integral stand, have to help people, if we want to, affirm the fear that they are feeling, but then invite them into including the traditionalism but trans like becoming bigger than that transcending that and being able to find a larger umbrella to hold traditionalism and modernity and the critiques of postmodernity. so next next week we're going to look a little bit about how to do that and we're going to talk um a little bit longer too about <clears throat> What are some ways to build from the ground on healthy traditionalism, healthy modernity, and healthy post-modernity? So what does it actually physically look like in when we're living our life? And I know that I'm going to be interested in hearing from uh, Eduardo next week. Some of your stories are, are really cool to hear on that. Yes, we must hear from the graduate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you'll be graduated next week this time, huh? Yeah, I told uh, people while you were gone at the beginning, uh, I said Saturday, Saturday, eventually. Well, congratulations. Yeah, we are so proud. <laughs> Woo! Yay, Eduardo. Thank you all. That is so awesome. Thank you, so um, I did. Uh, would anybody like to close us out for, for tonight? <clears throat> Barbara, do you have anything for us? Do you have a, something that you've written? It's okay if you don't. 
I do, but I don't forgot where I put it, so I'll bring that next week. Okay. All right. Barbara, your your podcast was great, Barb. Oh well, well thank you. Awesome. Fred, could you close us out? Lately, lately. Oh, let's all take a deep breath together on the count of three. One, two, three. Hold that breath, hold it, hold it. And with compassion, send that breath out to the rest of the world. Knowing that every breath that we take, we breathe in over millions of millions of atoms that have been rebreathed by everyone on the face of the planet. We are one. Most gracious, infinite creator, we thank you for this moment, this moment of seeing you, this moment of you seeing you through us. And who would have thought that you are this close? We relish in that reality and in that joy and all we choose to do in our little third density minds is just try to get closer. So let the rest of this week be that type of dance. And all the wonderful names that you are, we pray. Amen. Amen. You're a master, Fred. Beautiful, Fred. Thanks, Doug. Thanks, Fred. See everybody next week. God bless everybody. Bye. Bye.